Hey, good morning. Good morning and welcome to 2021, January the 3rd. So far, so good. <laughs> now, I know that I told you just last week that the first week of 2021 is probably going to feel a whole lot like the last week of 2020. But I don't know. There is something about the first of the year, right? There is something about a brand new year, new beginnings, new opportunities, you know, kind of a renewed optimism with a brand new year. And as we start a new year, I am going to be starting a new uh, sermon series for a few weeks to go through January here. And actually, I'm building off of, Dave, I'm building off of last week's lesson. I didn't mean for last week's lesson to be a uh, a series. It was supposed to be a standalone thing, but I kind of kept coming back to the question that the disciples asked each other after Jesus stilled the storm in Mark chapter 4, who is this man? Who is this guy? Um, I'm going to start some time uh, this week's, or this year talking about who Jesus is and the difference he makes. And I know that I'm talking to people here in the auditorium and watching with us online, people who I'm sure you all feel like you have a pretty good handle on who Jesus is and the difference he makes. And I'm sure the disciples had the same thought. They'd spent some time with Jesus. They'd followed him. They'd heard his teaching. They'd seen some miracles. I'm sure they thought they had a pretty good handle on who Jesus was and the difference that he made. And then, boy... With no warning, they see this other side of Jesus, a side that they weren't expecting and a side that kind of surprised them and in kind of stunned disbelief, they asked themselves, who is this man? And we thought we knew him, but we didn't know him as well as we thought we knew him. Which reminds me of a story that I want to share. When Martha and I were uh, dating, uh, we'd go to church together. We are still dating, and we're still going to church together. But uh, when we were in college, for some reason, we made a decision to, to go to a, a congregation we'd never been to before, and I don't even know, remember why we decided to go there, but uh, you know, we'd both gone to church all our lives, and we knew the routine, we knew what to expect. So we walked up to this church, we'd never been there before, there in Nashville, and um, there were greeters at the door, and there was an older, very enthusiastic greeter who greeted us, go, hey, it looks like a couple visitors. Uh, you know, I've always kind of hated that, uh, that term. Um, always make you feel like you don't really belong. But uh, we, okay, I get it, yes. So we introduced ourselves, he introduced him. Uh, Martha said, I'm, I'm Martha Monks, and I said, my name's Tim Stutzman. He said, Martha, Stim, nice to have you with us. Follow me. And we started following him. I turned to Martha and said, did he just call me Stim? <laughs> She kind of chuckled and said, I, I think he did. He introduced us to another guy who's going to take us to our seats. This is Tim and this is Martha. I said, it's Tim. Excuse me? It, it's Tim. My name's Tim. Oh, I'm sorry. Okay, sorry. We go and sit down. We're leaving on the way after, out the door after services. Hey, Martha, Tim, nice having you with us today. It's Tim. Besides, Tim is not even a name. No. I could get Jim or Tom or something, but nobody names a child Stim. The next week, 
We go back there the next week, same old guy, greeting. Martha, Stim, good to see you back. <laughs> it's Tim. You know, this guy had like the best, worst memory in the world. But it gets better. Or actually, it gets worse. Months later, we didn't go back. But months later, we went back. Hadn't been there in like three months. We walk up, same guy, same greeter. Hey, I remember you too. Ah, uh, Martha and... Don't tell me. Martha and... It's going to come to me. Martha and... I extend my hand and say, Stim. <laughs> good to see you again. Yeah, Stim, come on in. Man, good to have you back. We go in and sit down and Martha said, You are such a jerk. <laughs> true. All these years later, when I do something stupid, Martha will still say, nicely done, stem. <laughs> but we've all probably had those times when we've been around people, they think they know us, but they don't really know us. And they're trying to act like, hey, I know you. No, you really don't. You really don't know me. But we all also all realize who we are matters. How we are identified, it matters. Proverbs 22, a good name is more desirable than great riches. To be esteemed better than silver or gold. Our reputation matters. Who we are matters. Not who people think we are. Not who we're perceived to be. Not who people want us to be, but who we really truly are. It matters. I don't know I don't know how frustrated Jesus got when he was misrepresented or when he was misunderstood. I'm sure it had to be frustrating to him. I mean, he feeds 5,000 people with a handful of food. He, he you know, brings a, a girl back from, from the dead, and, and people still don't recognize his deity. Uh, I wonder if Jesus was ever tempted to ask, don't you know who I am? You think you know who I am, but you don't really know who I am. No, even today, everyone knows the name of Jesus. But not everyone really knows Jesus. Not everyone knows who Jesus is and the difference that he makes. So for the next couple weeks, we're going to camp out in the Gospels. And we're going to look at some things that make Jesus distinctive from every other world leader, that make him unique from every other spiritual advisor, that make him different from every other social influencer in history. Reasons why we're convinced that he's the son of God. Jesus uh, himself said in John chapter 14, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you really knew me, you would know my Father as well. At the heart of Christianity is knowing who Jesus is. The heart of Christianity is knowing the difference that he makes. Those the things are just the foundational to our faith. And so we're going to get some, some glimpses in the next couple of weeks of how Jesus lived and how Jesus loved and, and the things that he taught. And I, I hope that we'll be reminded of some things, encouraged by some things, and, and I hope challenged by some things as well. Because despite what everyone wants to tell you, all religions are not the same. 
All roads do not lead to the same place. And it's very politically correct to say, well, you believe what you want to believe, and I'm going to believe what I want to believe. And as long as we're sincere, and as long as we're humble and we're trying, then God or Allah or whoever you're praying to is going to honor that. But that doesn't even make sense logically, does it? I mean, if we're being just logical about it, it doesn't make sense. But even more so than that, as Christians, we are tasked with investigating who Jesus is. Part of our responsibility as a Christian is to try to better understand who is this man? Who is Jesus? And, and, and what difference does he make? So that's, that's our challenge. And that's our responsibility. And when we really take that challenge to heart, what you start to realize is there are some key differences between Christianity and every other religion. There are some serious differences between Jesus and every other spiritual voice. And they're not just subtle differences. They're not just philosophical nuances. They are big rocks, serious, uh, life-changing things that are just really important. So, I want to begin with a reality that that might be kind of obvious to you, but it can't be overlooked. And and that is Jesus' teaching was new. And his teaching was different. It was completely countercultural to what was being taught in that day. And Jesus was intentionally different in his teaching. Uh, he He was comfortable being singled out as different. And I think he expected his followers to be comfortable um, with that label as well. It was Jesus who said in Matthew chapter 7, enter through the narrow gate. For wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction and many enter through it. But small is the gate, narrow the road that leads to life and only a few find it. Jesus said there's a couple choices that you have. There's a couple choices in the paths that you take. You can take the easy road You can take the broad road, and most people do. It's a pretty crowded road, but the destination is destruction. Or you can choose a much narrower path. Not a lot of people choose that path, but the destination is life. Now, God has given us the dignity of choice. He has allowed us to choose our path, and the path that we're on determines where we end up. We don't really realize quite as much, I think, today, 2,000 years removed, just how countercultural Jesus' teachings were. Um, I guess maybe we should because they're still countercultural. Uh, for instance, uh, what did Jesus teach about serving? You know, we have been programmed in America, especially, to buy into the idea that when we finally make it, when we finally arrive, when we climb to the top of the ladder, What is waiting is people lined up to do things for us. That's how I know I've arrived. Because now I don't have to do these things for myself. Now I know there are people waiting to do what I want done. And I don't have to worry about it. Someone else does it for me. Jesus never puts that up as a goal to attain. His teaching on serving was completely different. Jesus said that you're not going to... The measure of someone's greatness isn't to figure out how many people are lined up waiting to serve you. Really, the measure of someone's greatness is how many people are you serving? What? Yeah. How many people are you serving? 
That's how I'm going to measure greatness in the kingdom. I got on the screen there, Matthew chapter 20. Uh, you know this passage. We know it. In fact, Jesus speaks this right after a couple of disciples are arguing about who's going to be the greatest. Jesus called them together and said, You know the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be your slave, just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Now, I mentioned, we know that passage. We have heard that passage all our lives because we know Matthew, right? We know Jesus' teachings. But what if you'd never heard that before? What if you just heard Jesus say, listen, here's how I want you to be great in the kingdom. I want you to serve other people. That's how I'm going to define greatness. In fact, Jesus says, that's why I came. I came to serve other people. And I'm going to expect you to make those different decisions as well. And that's, for me, that's why those words of Jesus are really have kind of haunted me all my life. Not so with you. Because I grew up in a home where my parents quoted that verse to me all the time. Although I didn't know they were quoting the passage of scripture, and to tell you the truth, they didn't, uh, they didn't quote it like that. They just shortened it to, not you. That's what they told us, not you. I didn't know it was a scripture and verse, you know. I didn't know that. But hey, um, some of my friends are going to be going, uh, not you. Um, I would like to take this money and, and they do, not you. You're different. What they're trying to teach me, you're different. You're, you're, we're calling you to be unique. And of course, I was like, I don't want to be different. I don't want to be unique. I want to do what everyone else is doing. And it was very frustrating to me to be told, not you. But I'll tell you, parents of young children, and maybe old children too, it's okay to say, not you, sometimes. Maybe we should say it a little bit more often than we do. Uh, no, Jesus' teaching uh, was so different. How about his views on giving? We live in a world that we put a really high premium on the pursuit and the acquisition of stuff. The bigger the house, the nicer the neighborhood, the newer the car, the, the, the more padded our retirement fund. Those are the things that we have been told. Those things matter. They're signs of importance. Success. Jesus says, but they're not signs of significance. There's nothing wrong with those kinds of things, as long as we keep our priorities straight, as long as we understand that Jesus' economy is so much different than the world's economy. He sees our possessions, he sees our our stuff as, as tools, things to use. So here's another one of Jesus' paradoxical statements in Acts chapter 20. In everything I did, I showed you that by this kind of hard work, we must help the weak, remembering the words of the Lord Jesus himself. It's more blessed to give than to receive. Again, that's a statement we all recognize. It's more blessed to give than to receive. We've heard that all our lives. But I'm going to tell you, there is only one group of people who believe that. Even today, 2,000 years later, there is only one group of people who actually believe that it's more blessed to give than to receive. And the only people who believe that's true, what Jesus said, are the people 
who give. They're the only ones who believe it. They're the only ones who recognize there is joy in giving. Because the rest of the world will tell you, no, the joy isn't receiving. Gimme, 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 gimme. Only the people who've experienced, who've tried it, who've taken Jesus at his word, said, hey, I'm going to give. Have experienced the joy and the blessings that, that come from being unselfish with the things that we've been blessed with. Now, we can hold on to our things, but don't hold on too tightly. I'll give you another countercultural teaching of Jesus that you might not consider, and that's what Jesus taught about prayer. He taught differently than everyone else taught about prayer. He prayed differently. You remember it was his Jewish disciples who'd grown up praying, who had prayed all their lives. It was those Jewish men who asked Jesus, would you teach us to pray like you pray? Because we've heard you pray, and you don't pray like we pray. I think sometimes we forget just how, how intimate and how powerful prayer really is. The idea that it is a conversation with God. And God has invited us into that conversation. And God is involved in the conversation. I've got Matthew 6 on the, on the screen there. Jesus talking. And when you pray, do not be like the hypocrites. They love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by men. I tell you the truth, they receive their reward in full. But when you pray, go into your room, close the door, and pray to your Father who is unseen. Then your Father who sees what's done in secret will reward you. Jesus is saying, don't worry so much about how other people perceive your prayer life. Because if you make it about you and anybody else but God, you've missed it. If your prayer life is about you and anybody else but God, you've missed the importance of prayer. You've missed the intimacy of prayer. You've missed the power of prayer. It's between you and God. So keep it personal. Keep it real. Keep it humble. And the God who knows your heart is watching when nobody else is watching. And the God who knows, the God who's watching, he's going to bless you. He'll bless you. He'll reward you. I'll give you another uh, area of Jesus' countercultural view, and that's his teaching on life and death. Matthew chapter 16. Then Jesus says to the disciples, If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Whoever wants to save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for me will find it. And again, that did and that does really fly in the face of conventional wisdom. Because we're programmed to look out for number one. Well, Self-preservation, that's pretty high on our list, right? But Jesus' own life and his death is going to show that he means what he says. He's not just lecturing on this stuff. He's living this stuff. And uh, it's actually going to happen in the days to come. Apostle Paul had it right when he said, For me to live is Christ, to die is gain. We run into trouble when we have a very short-sighted view of life. We need to keep this eternal perspective. And I don't have to tell any of you just how uncertain this life is. You know, James calls it a vapor. It's here, and then, wow, where'd it go? It's gone. 
And the older we get, the more we realize how accurate James is. So we're getting ready to launch into a new year, 2021. I hope it's a great year. I don't know if it will be or not. I don't know what's going to happen 12 days from now, let alone 12 months from now. We might be yearning for the good old days of 2020, right? I don't know. But I hope that we keep in mind to to live this life with the next life in mind, those countercultural teachings of Jesus. Let me share with you a, a quote from a Christian author, Preston Sprinkle. He said this, Jesus came to establish an upside-down kingdom where enemies are loved, where persecutors are prayed for. And he deliberately invested in the foolish things of this world in order to show off the wisdom of God. He purposely invested in the foolish things of this world to show off the wisdom of God. Jesus showed us a way of life that goes against the grain of everything that culture tells us. That's one thing about his teaching. Then really quickly, I'm going to mention it and you know it, but we ought to remind ourselves, Jesus' teaching was really, really powerful. Now when you think about it, we know next to nothing about Jesus' formative years. We don't know anything about his training. Uh, We don't know anything about his education. We can infer a few things from one passage, but we don't really know very much about his younger years. We do know he was born into a uh, poor family and he grew up in Nazareth, which was the center of nothing, just a, just a nothing town. So why did everybody flock to hear this guy speak? He said, well, he performed miracles. Okay, aside from that, people still flocked to hear Jesus speak. Jesus was a magnet for people. Um, you know, why did thousands of people follow him out and, and listen to him on you know, the side of a hill? And you know, why did they skip a meal you know, so they could listen to Jesus speak and, and instead of eat? What was so different about his teaching? Well, we know that he was challenging and he was motivating and he was practical. People loved to listen to Jesus. And it's not because he told them exactly what they wanted to hear. Again, just the opposite. You know, he told them things that surprised them. He told them things that challenged them. Actually, he set the bar really high on expectations for the people that were listening to him. What made Jesus' teaching stand out? Lots of things, but let me share with you one thought. Several times in Scripture, there's one word that's used to describe Jesus' teaching. One thing that kind of separates his teaching from from every other rabbi and every other expert in the law. We're told that Jesus taught with authority. Several times, Scripture mentions that people recognize this guy is teaching with authority. Mark chapter 1, they went to Capernaum, and when the Sabbath came, Jesus went into the synagogue and began to teach. The people were amazed at his teaching because he taught them as one who had authority, not as the teachers of the law. His teaching is different than all these other teachers that we're used to listening to. And then just a couple verses later, after he drives a demon out of a man, verse 27, the people were all so amazed that they asked each other, what is this? A new teaching, and with authority. What makes this teaching so new? Well, one thing is, he's teaching with authority. 
And people recognize when someone is teaching with authority. People recognize authority in a situation. A couple of weeks ago, um, I'm watching the Bucks play. A lot of you probably were too. Tom uh, Brady gets dinged up a little bit, and he goes off the sideline, and the backup comes in. They're on the drive. You know, the game's close. Blaine Gabbert, the backup, shows up, has a couple plays, gets sacked once. You, know, it's, you can tell he's kind of nervous about the whole thing. The, that, that camera in the, you know, zooms around in the middle of the field, which I hate. It was always zooming in on Blaine Gabbert's face to back up, and he, he kind of looked panicked. After every play, he was looking to the sideline like, am I coming out? Am I staying in? I hope I'm coming out. And listen, this is a guy who is an elite athlete. He's in the NFL, so I'm sure he is an elite athlete. But there was a difference when he was in the huddle. Tom Brady comes jogging back out, and it was like, calm down. Let's get back to work. And you could just tell this guy had authority. There was a difference. There was something different about Jesus' teaching. And maybe it was hard for them to put their finger on, but what they decided on, the closest they could get was, he's teaching with authority. We need to listen to what he says. In fact, there's a phrase that Jesus used. He used it several times, especially in the Sermon on the Mount. He said this, You have heard it said, and then he would say something, but I tell you, Remember him saying that over and over again in the Sermon on the Mount? You have heard it said, um, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I tell you, if someone strikes you on the right cheek, turn to the left cheek also. You have heard it said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemy. Pray for those who persecute you. You know what you're used to hearing, but I'm telling you something different. And I'm telling it to you with authority. Jesus is teaching, and I think we forget this sometimes. Jesus' teaching was so powerful. I mean, in the moment, it was powerful. In fact, you remember what those people said at the end of the Sermon on the Mount? All those, you've heard it said, examples. Matthew chapter 7, verse 28. When Jesus had finished saying these things, all the Sermon on the Mount, the crowds were amazed at his teaching. Because he had taught as one who had authority and not as their teachers of the law. This guy is not teaching like our teachers. And he's not laying down some other layer of law for us to get hung up on rules and regulations. This guy is teaching stuff that's liberating. It is freeing. It is life-giving. It's practical. And people responded to that teaching. People traveled miles to hear Jesus teach. They'd cross mountains. They, they walked around seas. They you know, cut a hole in a roof to get to this guy and hear his teaching. And of course, what is most powerful is Jesus' teaching wasn't taught with the expectation of informing their lives. He taught to transform their lives. And then he takes this teaching and he entrusts it to, to start with, a pretty small group of guys and a pretty uh, unusual group of guys. Just some smelly fishermen and greedy tax collectors and you know, a couple of brothers who were rebellious, sons of thunder. And he invited them individually 
to follow him. That's why as Jesus is getting ready to go to the cross, he reminds them, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you to go and bear fruit, fruit that will last. Jesus in John chapter 15, if you know that whole section there, Jesus is telling his disciples, he's telling his students, I'm I'm getting ready to leave. I'm going to die. I'm going to be resurrected, but then eventually I'm going to be gone. I'm I'm going away. And um, I want you to keep teaching what I've been teaching. And I want you to keep living how I've been living. And I want you to love people the way I've loved people. And I want you to keep doing the things that I've been doing. And when that gets frustrating, and when that gets difficult, I want you to remember, you didn't choose me. I chose you. Jesus is telling these guys, I believe in you. And if you follow my countercultural teaching, people are going to see me living in you. Five times in the Gospels, Jesus said, believe in me. Twenty times, Jesus said, follow me. Now, when people listened to Jesus teach with authority, when they saw his miracles and, and still rejected the message, I wonder how frustrated he was. This is more than missing his name. This is, you know, people missing the Messiah here, failing to realize who he was and, and why he came. I wonder how frustrating it was for Jesus to to realize these people don't understand that I am the way, the truth, and the life. There's an old hymn that we used to sing. I sang it growing up, and I don't don't know if we still sing it or not. A couple months ago, I talked about an old hymn, and I mentioned it, and Dave said, we sing it all the time. And everybody, all of you said, we sing it all the time. Um, Must Jesus bear the cross alone? Do we we ever sing that anymore? We sing it all the time, yeah. (laughs) I don't remember singing it in a long time, but... It's an old song, and the first line is, Must Jesus bear the cross alone, and all the world go free? No, there's a cross for everyone, and there's a cross for me. And I've always had a problem with that song. I understand the, the message of the writer. I understand that we all have a cross to bear, and I understand what the, what the message is of the song. But I've always had a disconnect with that song. Because the question is, must Jesus bear the cross alone? And I can argue, and I think I can argue biblically, absolutely. Absolutely. Truthfully. Sadly. Painfully. You know, the answer is yes. He did bear the cross alone. You know, he's surrounded by people at the foot of the cross that are hurling insults taunting him, shouting at him. All because they didn't know who he was. They thought they did. They thought they had Jesus figured out. They thought they knew exactly who was hanging on that cross. But they had no idea. And I don't know if Jesus uh, got frustrated thinking, boy, you know, if you only knew. I don't know what the temptations were for Jesus there on the cross. I don't know if he kind of thought like I did about my greeter friend, you know, back in college. You don't know who I am. You think you know who I am, but you don't know who I am. I do know what he was thinking concerning the people who crucified him, though. I do know what he's thinking while he hung on the cross because he said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. 
Jesus' prayer on the cross was, Father, forgive them because they don't know who I am. They just don't know. They, they think they know who I am, but they don't know who I am. So, for the next couple of weeks, we're going to take a look at who Jesus is and the difference that Jesus makes. Who is this man? I'm looking forward to the series, and I hope you are too. Let's close today with a prayer. Father, when Jesus comes again, there's going to be no case of mistaken identity. Everyone will know who Jesus is and why he's come. So, Father, would you help us prepare for that day? Help us to follow your countercultural teachings, to walk in a way that brings glory and honor to, to you and to your Son. And it's in the powerful name of Jesus that I pray. Amen. Dave is going to have a song to help us prepare for the Lord's Supper. If you're in the auditorium today and you would like to speak to an elder or one of our shepherds, uh, they'll be available at the very end of service. If you're online with us today and you'd like somebody to be praying with you about something, there's a link that will be posted and, uh, and we will certainly uh, take that seriously.